0: Shit
1: is everywhere. Oh, we don't have time for that because Ray is running out of battery <laughs> on his laptop. Uh, tell them the story, Ray. I was a- so they know why, oh, why we're panicky.
0: I was about to click, hit Skype, and I guess maybe because I didn't really want to talk to you tonight, the power goes out. <laughs> uh, there's a power outage in Central Virginia. I've got 50% on the power on the computer. I've got 45% on the cell phone I'm using as a Wi-Fi signal. We're fucked. But hopefully we can get out one show tonight.
1: Here's, here's here's what I think Okay, go ahead. On. Five minutes before record time, Heather comes to you and says, I'm horny. I want you to fuck my brains out. And you're like, well, I've got to do these shows. like, But you don't want to miss your one, right. you know, once a month um, sex opportunity. No. So uh, you said, look, I'll just tell Cam that the power's <laughs> is there. I've got to come up with a reason, <laughs> a way to get out of this I have to please,
0: as quickly as possible. I have to please without, Cam so I can please without, my wife. Yeah.
1: Yeah, without pissing Cam right. off. So um, that's my
0: story, and I'm sticking to it. You came up
1: with this bullshit yeah. story that I'm not. I'm not buying.
0: <laughs> the kids are like, "What are we gonna uh, look, do?" I said, "Play a board game." If they knew how to flip me off, they would. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm bored.
1: There's a game. Make me not bored. Um, Fox said to me the other day, "Daddy, I'm bored." Then he said. What does bored mean? <laughs>
0: That's a cart before the horse, but
1: okay. I said it's the thing I would like to be, <laughs> I be... but I got too much to do. Right, don't have time to be bored. Enjoy while you uh, can. Welcome back to the yeah, welcome back to the bullshit filter episode three ten. Right, episode ten of our war on drugs series. Um, we, we we're talking about Harry Anslinger, the first American drug czar, as we've seen in. Our previous episodes uh, about Harry, he, he gets the job in 1930, but cocaine and opium and, and heroin and morphine and those sorts of things, the good stuff, yeah, we'll just call it that, didn't have much of a user base
0: right.
1: in America in 1930. So, n- not, not a great start <laughs> for somebody who wants to build an empire when people aren't really using the drugs. So... He he decides to focus on cannabis. He sees some stories in the tabloids about how cannabis is driving the the blacks and the Mexicans crazy, and how white women who smoke it want to have sex with the black men and the Mexicans. Right. Um, so, because he can't think of any possible reason why a white woman would want Ew. to have sex with a. Black stallion, (laughs) so um, he decides to make it his cause. Celebra. Uh, He tries to bust the jazz musicians because he fucking hates (laughs) jazz music. Um, That fails because Uh. the jazz musicians won't rat on each other. And he decides eventually, sometime later, to go after another celebrity target, which, as we indicated at the end of our last episode, was the jazz. Blues uh, legend, mm-hmm. the lovely, the great, the tragic, the tortured and tragic Billy Holiday. But before we get to that, because
0: yeah. that doesn't
1: really happen until the forties, mm-hmm. um, the late forties, really. I mean, he, he bothers her a bit, but the, it really comes to a head in the late forties, and we're still in the thirties, right? I want to talk, but I want to talk about more about what happened with some of Harry's, uh, you know, adventures. The adventures of Harry oh, yeah, the drugs yeah. are in the thirties. <laughs> Before we get to that, I want to just finish off our marijuana episodes by talking about the current state of Marijuana.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Marijuana. Of course, um, today, um, medical use of cannabis is legal with a doctor's recommendation, which I believe is relatively easy to get. Is it? In 29 US states. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's relatively easy. You go and you say, "I got a headache." He goes, "Smoke some weed." Well, that's my understanding. <laughs> my I don't know if you've ever tried that.
0: My cataracts are <laughs> acting up.
1: Yeah. yeah. Who's <laughs> he says? You sure you got cataracts? Who said that? I can't even see. <laughs> which one of you? Who's talking right now? Which one of you
0: doctors said that? Standing before me. Uh,
1: it's it's. Legal for medical use in 29 U.S. states, the District of Columbia, and the territories of Guam and Puerto Rico. Nice. They don't have the power. Recreational. They
0: don't have power, but they have marijuana.
1: Yeah, if I, I mean, like, a bit like you, really. You don't have power today, but you've got, <laughs> got limoncello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. The recreational use of cannabis is legal in nine U.S. states: Alaska, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Nevada, Oregon, Vermont. And Washington, Mm. plus the District of Columbia, and it's decriminalised in another 13 states, plus the U.S. Virgin Islands. Right. Commercial distribution of cannabis is allowed in all jurisdictions where it's been legalised, except Vermont and DC. Mm. Um, However, the DEA, which is a federal body, the Drug Enforcement Administration, still considers (laughs) it a legal one, a Schedule Schedule One one drug. Right. So you've got the states are legalizing it. The federal government is saying, no, nah, fuck, fuck that shit. It's uh, still a Schedule 1 drug. So it's a bit of a weird bipolar situation you've still got going on there. Yeah. Um, for reasons I don't fully understand. Do you understand why the states are making it legal, but the federal government's still not?
0: I think I think they're just um, getting away from... I think I think a lot of people have, over the years, even though they don't know who Harry Anslinger is I think a lot of people are starting to rethink things, but I think it's just local pressure, common sense, people are doing studies, that kind of thing. And I think someone has finally realized, look, this stuff is not making me a murderous, um, going, making me go on a murderous rampage. So again, I, I just think it's lo- local pressure more than anything else. But that's just a guess on my part.
1: Well, no. Well, I, I think it's becoming legal in, the, in, in the, the the states because it's a revenue opportunity. They want to be able to tax it. They need the money. America's broke. We all know that. Um, the You know, the, Trump doesn't know where he's going to come up with the next trillion dollars to fight another imaginary <laughs> war from, man. they got to get money from somewhere.
0: Yeah. Um, it does come back to money. Yeah. But the... the
1: My question was really, why isn't the federal government changing the status of it? Do you know? We'll get to that. Don't worry about it. I I shouldn't expect you to answer questions like that. We're not up to that stage yet. Uh, In Australia, uh, for those that are interested, as of today, uh, sort of April 2018, it's still illegal in most of Australia. Right. Decriminalized for personal use in the Northern Territory, South Australia, the ACT and Victoria Mm. Um uh, still illegal in the UK and mostly illegal in Canada. However, the laws in Australia are considered some of the most lax in the world. Uh, at, at a national level, there's really no overriding law that deals with cannabis. Right. Um, each state and territory has its own legislation. And Australia has largely stayed away from punitive drug policies um as as opposed to the US yeah, yeah. I, I,
0: in in new south wales yes, go, ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead I'm yeah, sorry
1: yeah no no I right, just wanted to ahead.
0: add on one thing we were you were talking about the financial aspect and, and I guess just because I'm still a naive trusting person I I was able to look this up uh, the united states spends annually on on its war on drugs just over 50 billion dollars a year so i mean just again and if they were to tax if they were to legalize and tax drugs and they were to charge tax rates comparable to those of alcohol, they would bring in $46.7 billion a year. So we're spending $50 billion and we're not making $50 billion a year because of this war on drug and Harry the asshole Anslinger.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it goes back before Harry, as right. we'll see. But, uh, yeah, he, he pushed it to a whole new level. <laughs> Eleven. Um, so getting, getting back to Australia mm-hmm. – um, Even in the states where it's still illegal, if you get caught with a a small amount, personal use amount, you're unlikely to be convicted. Right. They might put you into a treatment program or recommend that you go and do this or that, but you're not going to go to jail Mm. in this country. Now, medical marijuana here is now technically legal. Right. The government, uh, the federal government passed laws uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was 2016, uh, making it legal. But it, it, it's pretty restricted. You have to have uh, MS, epilepsy, cancer, oh. or HIV. So
0: cataracts uh, won't cut? AIDS,
1: too. Right. Right, right. You know, so... <laughs> so... So... Uh, it's still pretty restricted, um, but, you know, we, we've sort of... Ent- it's not like the US where you can say, I've got a, a headache or cataracts. Right. My balls hurt. So... <laughs> um, But there's a push here to decriminalise it entirely, unless you listen to uh, Jo Baxter, uh, the uh, executive officer of Drug Free Australia. She said in an interview earlier this year that she hopes the drug will remain illegal in Australia because she says it's actually quite a harmful drug, and I think if we make it more available, uh, it's going to make things worse. It's a gateway drug, she said, um, because she's a stupid cunt. And uh, as of today, some of the countries around the world with the laxest cannabis laws include Australia, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, the Czech Republic, India, Israel, Jamaica, Mexico, Jamaica, the Netherlands, Portugal, South Africa, Spain, Uruguay, and some uh, places in the US, as I mentioned, some of the countries with the strictest cannabis laws Uh, Indonesia, Japan, Malaysia, France, which is surprising, Poland, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, Turkey, Ukraine, and the United Arab Emirates. Now, these days, even the New York Times is in favour of the legalisation of marijuana. It took them almost 100 years to go from printing anti-marijuana propaganda stories... The, you know, the, the, the Mexicans are smoking a bit of weed and cutting each other's heads off and raping and pillaging <laughs> due to where they're saying, yeah, you know what, yeah, yeah, it's all right. Let it go. Yeah, it's pretty good, yeah. actually. Yeah, let's legalise it. So it raises the obvious question. If the times could be so wrong for so long <laughs> right. about marijuana, yeah. what other things have they been wrong about?
0: Castro? No, sorry.
1: Well, we, yeah, we already know that. And in fact, uh, in our bullshit field of the news show on Monday, we're going to be talking about the um, the the news today, yesterday, and today that uh, the president of, of Cuba, Raúl Castro, mm-hmm. uh, has just done what he said he was going to yeah. do when he took over as president ten years ago. When he when when Fidel retired and and Raúl um, became president, he said, "Look, I'm." I'm putting into place legislation that says that from now on, presidents will be restricted to two five-year terms. Uh, so when I've done my 10 years, I'm going to retire. That was up yesterday. He retired. Nice. And the US media w- went fucking nuts. And one of the things that I looked at this morning, and we'll talk about this on Monday, is if you look at the, the coverage of his uh, retirement, transition of power to uh, Diaz Canal, um, uh, 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 who's the Tim Cook of Cuba, Um, there's a lot in the U.S. media about the economic conditions of Cuba. Oh, people can't get this and they can't get that, and this is fucked and that is fucked and this is fucked. Have a look and see how many of the U.S. mainstream media stories mention the U.S. sanctions when they're talking about all of that (laughs) as being the cause of the economic problems in Cuba. I did a quick analysis this morning. New York Times, no mention of the sanctions – La Times no mention of the sanctions. CNN and USA Today did briefly mention the sanctions, um, but the New York Times doesn't even mention it. Yeah. No. Oh, Cuba's <laughs> fucked. The Castro's are fucked. Cuba's economy. Yeah. I- no mention of sixty years of American sanctions, right. uh, which is in- an interesting omission. And people who have listened to my uh, uh, three-hour breakdown of the New York Times' coverage on Fidel's death uh, last year. We'll know uh, uh, what I think about the the quality of the New York Times' reportage. (laughs) When it comes to Cuba. I
0: um, I was watching an interview today. There, there's a woman, I can't remember her name. She is the U.S. representative of American interests in Cuba. And she, exactly what you said. She just went on about saying, it, well, these people are struggling. They're suffering. They can't get access to so many of the basic things. This guy's coming in. And he's taking power. And and he's really being set up to fail because of what the Castro brothers did. I mean, she was just going to town. But yeah, not one mention of the punitive sanctions America has had on Cuba for quite some time.
1: And that President Trump has uh, accelerated. You know, Obama was winding him back. Trump got in and go, no, fuck, we're yeah. ramping him back up. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah, anyway, we'll talk about that in our news show on Monday. Anyway, so back to 1930. Uh, so in the 30s, as Harry's prosecuting his uh, war on drugs, he uh, runs into a guy called Henry, Henry Smith Williams. Yeah. He pisses Henry off, and uh, we're going to be talking for this episode um, and maybe the next couple of episodes about Henry Smith-Williams because he is an impressive motherfucker, Henry Smith-Williams. I,
0: I walked away with a different uh, impress, uh, impression of him. I was going to start off my part about saying there once was a cunt, but not just any cunt. This one, this massive cunt was Dr. Henry Smith Williams, born in 1863. This guy could do it all. He was, he was a doctor, he was a lawyer, he was the author of almost 100 books on history and science. This guy was a, a walking-around brain, but he was a massive cunt because of his view of, of humanity overall. I'm just going to call him the cunt brother, if that's okay. What? What's your problem with Henry Williams? Are you serious? He's like Harry Anslinger. He says if you're an, if you're an addict, you're a weakling. And he said the idea that every human life has genuine value and is therefore something to be treasured is an absurd banality. It would the world would be better off if forty percent of its inhabitants had never been born. And we can probably guess which racial groups should make up that 40%. This guy made Darwin – I don't know. Th- this guy, his Darwin views just scared the shit out of me, and I'm glad he wasn't in charge of anything. But that was my take yeah, on it. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know when he said that or where he said
1: that. You well, know, the fact that he um, said it at all
0: and he wrote it down, I think.
1: The where <laughs> and the when and the okay. who and the
0: why. I don't know. You don't get a pass for that. Yeah. Uh.
1: Yeah, uh, did you actually fact check that he said that? Did you did you did you go and look up some primary sources?
0: Did you actually? I tried to look him up. I besides his books, I had trouble finding detailed information on him.
1: Yeah, I did uh, actually get one of his books and uh, skim it. Right, I read the first couple of chapters and then skim the rest of it. Good for you. Um, so, and it, I mean, I'm impressed, I, but I don't know where he, that stuff you said comes from. So he wrote, He wrote, as you said, over 100 books, including he was the editor of a book called The Historian's History of the World, which I'm pretty sure is going to be our next podcast series. Um, 31
0: volumes. Oh, no, that was The History of Science. He wrote with his brother.
1: Like, yeah. fuck, fuck this, you know, doing Caesar or Alexander. We'll just go, hey, the here's the history of everything. <laughs> We're going to start. The Big Bang. With the Big Bang. <laughs> yeah. The Big Bang, and we're going to do a blow-by-blow account of everything that has happened since where's, then, and I mean everything. We're not leaving child? anything no, out. All of it. Anything out. Mm-hmm. This is honestly, this is where we've been heading all this time, right? <laughs> Just to, all right. Sit down, everyone. We're going to explain to you everything that ever happened. Get comfortable. Yeah, get comfortable. Yeah. Um. Now, <clears throat> in 1931, right? Henry, um had a brother. His brother was also a doctor. His brother's name was Edward. And Edward uh, built a clinic mm-hmm. for, for drug addicts and and volunteered at this clinic to, to help drug addicts. He would write prescriptions for drug addicts yeah. um, and, and would sort of try and make their lives better by, by keeping them functioning. Um, one day, Man came into the clinic, seemed to be suffering uh, very, very badly from heroin withdrawal symptoms. And Edward uh, met with him, had a look at his symptoms. According to Henry, the man was a wreck. He was on the verge of collapse. He was deathly pale. Sweat was pouring from his skin. He had the tremors seemed like his life was
0: threatened. Th- so Edward... Yeah, and the thing to keep in mind is that Edward is one of the most distinguished experts on opiate addiction in the world. This guy, like his brother, they have their own clinics. They've been around. They've seen a lot of things. And he probably pegged this guy the second he walked in for what what was, what was ailing him.
1: So Edward wrote the guy a prescription for heroin. Um, go to your go to, go to pharmacy... Give him this, he'll give you a little bit of heroin, yeah. it'll, it'll, take, you know, it'll, it'll take the tremors right. off, take the edge right. off, go, go about your day, yeah. go back to work, go back to your family, go do what it is that you have to do and a lot of these, to be a functioning exactly. member of society. And a
0: lot of people were doing this, because when I, I read that, I, I just assumed that they would overdose, they would load up, whatever, no, most of them were doing it to take the edge off so they could go back to work, they could go back to their families, they were dealing with their addiction, and this guy was helping them. Oh, can can yeah, I can just, I give just one thing, just to give you an idea of um, of what Edward's um, a, a little window into Edward's world. So, in nineteen fourteen, when the Harrison Act came out, which prohibited the, pres- the prescribing of cocaine and heroin. He wrote a book, he wrote his own book, and he wrote a lot of books like his brother. He wrote a book called The Alcohol Question. And in this book, he says that the prohibitory legislation is prone to increase illicit manufacture of liquor of the lowest quality. He also warned that banning alcohol would drive people to cocaine and morphine addiction. The implication was that Dr. Williams distinguished between addictive hard and relatively benign soft drugs. So even back in 1914, this guy's like, look, Any of this stuff, any of this stuff, if you make it illegal, you're going to help the criminals, you're going to tie these people's hands and you're going to make them desperate. So even back as far as 1914, this guy is trying to help people because he sees what it's doing to their lives and he's the one who's the medical expert and he's trying to help them.
1: Hmm. Good guy, Ed, that's what we're calling him. So he writes this guy a prescription for heroin um, and he felt pretty safe doing that because remember... The Harrison Tax Act of 1925 Mm -hmm. that we've talked about didn't interfere, deliberately didn't interfere with the rights of the medical profession to prescribe drugs. It was was very, very clear that doctors could continue to prescribe drugs where they saw fit. But, as we'll see... It wasn't to go the way that he thought it was going to go. The addict was actually a stool pigeon yeah. working for Anslinger. He was a he was a genuine addict right. who genuinely had all the symptoms, but uh, Harry w- would go out you know, his guys would go out and they'd uh, sort of hire these guys or threaten these guys, addicts, make them go into these clinics. Get the doctor to give him a prescription so they could bust them, and they'd throw these addicts a few bucks to to get them Jeez. to do that. These uh, the cops. Yeah. So once so once Edward writes the prescription, doors burst in. Edward gets arrested. Mm-hmm. Now, he wasn't alone in this. Over the years, something like twenty thousand doctors <sighs> were arrested for prescribing. Drugs. Now, keep in mind, the Harrison Tax Act said that doctors were allowed to prescribe drugs, right? But they were they were getting arrested anyway.
0: And, and let, let me add on to that real quick. So Edward had done this many times, like you said. He had set up this clinic specifically in California to help the addicts, but he felt pretty secure about this legally because in 1925 the Supreme Court ruled. In the uh, Supreme Court case, Linder versus the United States, that the court said that look we, we can 't tell these doctors what to do; they 're the ones who are the medical professionals and the the uh, The guy who wrote the opinion for the court case said obviously, direct control of medical practices in the states is beyond the power of the federal government so you've got you 've got the Supreme Court case backing backing up the law, and um, edward 's been doing this for years. This should not be a big deal, but as we 're going to see later on that um, Harry's getting away with some things.
1: Mm. Well, uh, just to just to 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 put a little bit more context around that. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Harrison Tax Act. Um, so I, said, I think I said 1925 yeah. before. I don't think that's right. 1915. In, I've, I've 1914. 1914. Yeah. 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 Right. I think it was approved end of 1914. Went into practice in right. 1915. Um, it said doctors could prescribe. But then there was another Supreme Court case uh, in 1919 called Webb versus the United States, mm. where the Supreme Court determined that the physicians could not prescribe drugs solely for maintenance. Right. So if you have somebody who's an addict and you need to give them a, a little little taste yeah. uh, just to stop them from going into withdrawal symptoms, you can't do that. God.
0: That's thought through. But yeah.
1: then in nineteen twenty five there was another case, as you said, the Linda case. Mm-hmm. Um so there was a guy, Dr. Nick Linda. He had a clinic in uh, Moore, Oklahoma, was prescribing drug drugs to addicts, got busted, his clinic got shut down. He um, he was prosecuted and convicted, he appealed, and the Supreme Court unanimously oh, overturned his conviction and said, listen, the federal government doesn't have the power to regulate medicine. Makes sense. So, so, you know, you can't tell doctors what they can and can't prescribe. You're not a fucking doctor. <laughs> you don't get to... <laughs> you, that's the whole
0: point. Right? Here, here's how I think of yeah. it. The doctors have white coats. The judges have black coats, robes. So you keep them separately. Yeah, a doctor doesn't tell the, the lawyers how to do their job because they're not professionals in that field with all their experience. So
1: by 1931, when Edward gets arrested, the Supreme Court has already ruled yeah. that doctors can do this. Right, but that doesn't stop Harry and his team of uh, drug thugs. The drug thugs. <laughs> um, now, in this case, he, he 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 picked with the wrong guy because Edward, as you said, was was you know brilliant, and his brother also brilliant, despite some of the uh, dicey shit that you claim he wrote Mm -hmm. um, in the past. Henry Smith-Williams was one of the most respected medical authorities in the United States. He knew more about chemistry and biology than any other person in America. He had written a 31-volume history of science. (laughs) Um, He'd written many entries in the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, all in his spare time, right. where, on top of being a, a doctor and having 10,000 patients. And I went to newspapers.com, right. one of my research tools, and I searched for Henry Smith-Williams. And honestly, I found a ton of newspaper articles from the the 1910s, 20s, 30s, uh, quoting him, referencing him, yeah. quoting him. So he was everywhere. He, he was... Yeah. Yeah, he was the man of the moment back then. So after his brother got arrested, Henry went on the fucking (laughs) warpath. And he started to do his research about the drug problem in in America. And and it culminated in a book that he published in 1938 called Drug Addicts Are Human Beings. (gasps) The Story of Our Billion Dollar Drug Racket.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Now, I, I tracked down a copy of this book. It's been out of print since 1938. <laughs> um,
0: but, you, yeah. but I
1: found a copy of it yeah. on archive.org, um, a, a PDF version. Um, so you can go, somebody found it, an old copy in a library somewhere and scanned it and put it up on archive.org, and you can download it and read it. And I highly recommend it because it's a, it's a terrific book. The preface to the book is a speech given in Congress in 1938 by a Democrat congressman from Seattle with the awesome name of John Coffey. His pickup line to ladies is, hey, would you you like some coffee?
0: Would you like some coffee in you? you, you,
1: Would you like some coffee inside you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you take your coffee? Long and black? Yeah. I'm a white guy, but, you know.
0: <laughs> Close your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And pretend that I've got more than an inch. Um, he, uh, and this is a great speech too, and it's very long. Um, so coffee was uh, trying to get a bill up that would um, uh, uh, fix the way that drugs were being handled in the United States. This is in 1938. Right. Uh, He points out that there were no prisoners in federal prisons in the United States for for drug-related offences before the passage of the Harrison Act. Right. So before 1915, there's no drug-related prisoners in federal prisons. Ten years later, 1925, one-third of all prisoners in federal prisons were narcotic cases. Right. Um, he, he claimed that the total number of federal narcotic prisoners since the Harrison Act was something in the order of 75,000 and they oh. had an aggregate prison sentence of upward of 100,000 years oh, between God. them. Um, so the point being that these people weren't criminals in 1914 1915 they were criminals and we've we've put already in, in the first 10 years we put 75,000. he's talking 1938 so it's even 13 years after that. Right. God knows how many yeah. people who had, had been put in prison. And he was saying that no other statute, had ever operated to make people into criminals on a comparable scale. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. One day, these people are just doing what they're doing. Yeah, yeah they're, 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 they're taking a shot of morphine or a shot of heroin or cocaine or whatever, the same way the rest of us have a cup of coffee in the morning, to help them get through their day. Yeah. That's, that's their get-through-the-day drug of choice. In 1914, it's fine. 1915, you're going to jail. And your life is ruined. Yeah, he, and he also pointed out, coffee. This is in his speech that there was no federal law that had ever had control over a profession, mm. but now this one is, depending on the interpretation of it, and, and when you're looking at it, um, that they were saying doctors couldn't prescribe drugs uh, to, to patients. And he points out that the Supreme Court had backed up that the government shouldn't have that control in the, the Linda case. And yet, here he is in 1938, and the Narcotics Bureau, run by Anslinger, is ignoring that decision by the Supreme Court, running around and charging, arresting, bullying yeah. doctors all over the country who were just attempting to cure their addicts, or at least help their addicts get through the day. Right. Coffee said, It is believed that this is the first instance in all history of the denial of a medical treatment to a class of citizens of whatever status or capacity. Mm. Which is a pretty profound statement, I think. Here we have a democratic government in 1938. And who was president in 1938,
0: Ray? Uh, that would be FDR. FDR,
1: beloved. Franklin I'm in a wheelchair but that doesn't stop me banging my mistress's Roosevelt. Don't let the wheelchair fool you, my dick still works, Roosevelt. Uh, it's un- it's under his administration, the new deal administration where this is going on. Right. Henry Harry Harry Anslinger worked under FDR. At least in those years, right? He was—he already got the job before FDR. FDR came to power in '33, right? And, and, and Anslinger uh, uh, remains in this job, heading the the narcotics bureau, and uh, he's doing this arresting doctors who would do it. Who are, what they're doing is absolutely legal. Uh, he's arresting them anyway, ruining the lives not only of the patients but of the doctors, um, and he's doing it during FDR's administration. No, admittedly, FDR had some other things going on. (laughs) Busy. A
0: little bit busy. Yeah. But still, that's the whole point of a government is to have hopefully intelligent, uh, dedicated people looking at everything saying, hey, what can we fix next?
1: Yeah. I mean, FDR, uh, you know, he was trying to build an atom bomb so he could... (laughs) kill hundreds of thousands of Japanese he can't worry about what's going on <laughs> he's got other
0: priorities no the, the, before you go on but i did i did find this interesting that again it's it's the um they they're about to be dealing with the uh, no they're already dealing with the uh, depression you would think you know don't make this stuff illegal or don't go after the doctors because th- this is you know helping revenue flow and taxes are being collected or whatever but i guess for anslinger it was a moral crusade and and, and money can be damned
1: this is uh this is really interesting so um again uh john Coffey says addicts should be treated as people with a medical condition not as criminals this is in 1938 yeah you've got a a a, a senator saying this um the congressman like this is this is amazing that this to me that this knowledge that it was a medical problem i kind of thought maybe this was a relatively recent phenomenon <laughs> that we've started thinking about it as a medical condition. Yeah. Every time I say, well, you know, you should treat addicts like they've got a medical problem, I feel like, I, like I'm, I'm, I'm... I'm on to something here. On, uh, I've, I've got Eureka. the tablets that <laughs> Yahweh has just given me. I'm on the mountain. I'm speaking down to the people. Uh, someone write this down. Can I have your attention? Can I have your attention, please? Uh, everybody, it has come to my attention. This, this guy... Yeah. And like congressmen, we know congressmen aren't that bright, right? Particularly the guy, the guy who was the former head of the RNC's uh, fundraising committee, mm-hmm. who uh, just had to resign because he paid uh, came out. Michael Cohen's arrest—that this, right. the Michael Cohen helped this guy pay a Playboy playmate one point six million dollars. Yeah, because he fucked her, got her pregnant, had to pay for her an abortion, Ooh. and paid her one point six million dollars to uh, shut her up. Jeez.
0: Anywho, I'm not very wrong, bright. I'm in the wrong business. Point. Yeah, 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 yeah. You wish
1: you were a. Playboy playmate that could get knocked up by congressmen is that where you're going
0: for 1.6 million? I'd seriously consider it.
1: You'd you'd have an abortion, okay? (laughs) Um, now uh, Coffee also says that in his speech that they, uh, if they they decriminalized the drugs, they'd be able to free up the courts, they'd get rid of all of these cases going through the courts, free up the courts to focus on more important things. They would empty the jails. Right. They would free up the three billion dollars a year that they were already spending in 1938 oh. on enforcing drug laws. Right. Lot and again, 1938, the country is in the depression, still trying to get itself out of the depression. It's probably ramping up in 38 to get ready for WW2. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, still. you know, for this last eight years, depression started after the crash in October 29, right? So the they've been in a depression for eight years. They're spending $3 billion a year on a drug war that didn't exist 20 <laughs> years ago.
0: It was made up. Man-made. Made right. up. Right.
1: Man-made. Exactly. He's like, hey, you know, we can actually use that money to, I don't know, like feed people um, <laughs> instead of putting them in jails. Um, he also pointed out in his speech in Congress right. that the by, by making the supply of the drugs illegal gangs, the mafia, had stepped into the breach and that it was a billion-dollar industry. Wow. Yeah. So he's trying to get this bill up that's going to change all of that. Needless to say, he wasn't successful. (laughs) Right. Um, Harry made sure of that. Uh, He had enough politicians in his pocket at this stage to make sure the bill didn't even get out of committee.
0: I just wanted to give one thing from that book that you mentioned that Williams wrote there was just one there was just one little thing in the uh in the preamble that he wrote. I just thought it was really i mean this guy's this guy is like going after these government officials and and he 's not holding back like you said. He wrote the very existence of the illicit drug traffic which Conditioned solely on the illegal activities of the official public enemies in question, to speak of a puny Capone or a futile Dillinger as a public enemy number one, while these big boys are at the helm, is like suggesting that gnats are more venomous than rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes. So he's like, forget, forget Capone, forget Dillinger. These guys who have made these laws, who have destroyed lives, who have destroyed the doctors, who have destroyed their professions, uh, and all these people are in jail. I mean, these are the these are the real monsters of our country, and he's putting this right in this book that's that he's going to put out.
1: He is, indeed. Um, by the way, just before we finish up with John Coffey, um, he had been elected uh, to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1936. Mm-hmm. Um, he survived in Congress for... Uh, ten years basically, nice. and then he, he he got kicked out, and uh, you know uh, in, in sort of forty seven, um, beaten by a Republican, and and I I, I think it might have had something to do with his position on the war on drugs. I'm sure it didn't help. It meant that he, yeah he got uh, kicked out. Um, <clears throat> so Henry writes this book. Um, In the introduction to the book, he calls the period of 1915 to 1938 the American Inquisition.
0: (laughs) Nice. And no one expects... The era of the... (laughs) No, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) The era of
1: the persecution of sick people in the United States by government edict. Yeah. Nailed it. Now, you know, we've, we've talked, Ray, about... Uh, on our Cold War show, we've talked about Uncle Joe Stalin, right, and um, all the people that he put in jails, um, uh, 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 the purges and, and the jails, because he arbitrarily, some would suggest, right. decided that these people were a threat to uh, the, the the Soviet Union,
0: right, work camps. They were a threat,
1: yeah. threat, threat to his plans mm-hmm. to. Quickly upgrade the Soviet Union from backwards the backwards agrarian uh, economy mm-hmm. that the the Bolsheviks uh, took over the way the Czars had left it. I mean, they'd only gotten rid of serfdom uh, like ten years <laughs> right. or fifteen years before the the revolution. Right, um, hadn't really moved into the twentieth century. Bolsheviks took it over. It was it was a clusterfuck economically, mm-hmm. socially, backwards. And Stalin, uh, first Lenin, then Stalin, were trying to do rapid upgrades of the entire country of a couple of hundred million people. Um, and anyone that was getting in the way of that, Stalin just said, "Well, sorry, fuck you. You're going to go to a work camp or you're going to a prison of some kind." And some were, and some were killed. Um, So here at the same time, that happened in the 30s. Here in the 30s in the United States, well, before that, from 1915 through to the 30s, Mm -hmm. the United States is arbitrarily putting 75, probably by the 30s, let's say 150, 200,000 people in jails Mm -hmm. just because some, some cunt has arbitrarily decided that... It's okay to use these drugs to get you through the day, but it's not okay to use these other drugs.
0: Exactly. And like you were saying earlier, I mean, these people would rock up to the local pharmacy, pay a couple of cents, get something, take the edge off, get on with their life, and now that is not possible, what are they supposed to do? It's not like the addiction has gone anywhere just because you write a law.
1: Exactly. And and these people weren't criminals. At least this is the perspective that Henry gives in his book. He goes, look... I've been treating, my brother's been treating these people for decades. The vast majority of them are, are, are good members of society because they don't need to be criminals because they can come. We give them a prescription for for like a buck. They can go and get their prescription filled, and that gets them through a, a week or a couple of weeks or a month or whatever it is of their needs. They've got families. They've got children. They've got They've got jobs. They're productive members of society, although we're in the middle of the Depression, so maybe they don't have jobs, but it's not their fault. And by the way, like, fucking hell, we're in a Depression. Like, let the people get high. Why
0: why are you being cunts about this? (laughs) They they can't get a job. Their families are starving. At least let them get high. You know? And, And the other part of that is the vast majority of people who drink alcohol, are now not alcoholics. The vast majority of these people who who use these uh, various drugs are not addicts. Now, the ones that are are obviously need some kind of help, or their lives are about to get even worse. And so, this guy, Doctor Edward Williams, uh, has set up this clinic. So he's dealing with the with the, with the people who are truly be it's beyond their control, that, that, and and he's, he's trying to help them. And that has been taken away from these from the American people.
1: Now. Henry blames one man in particular for all of this, and it's not Harry Anslinger. Mm. It's Harry Anslinger's predecessor, the head of the narcotics division of the Treasury before it became its own thing. Right. Colonel Levi G. (laughs) Nut, or Left Nut, as his friends like to call him. Right. Now, I mentioned in the last episode that uh, Lefty was... uh, fired uh, for padding his arrest record in 1930, which is when Harry took over the job. There's a little bit more to it than that, though. Right. So, uh, which I discovered this week. Now, Lefty was um, the chief of the Narcotics Division within the Prohibition Unit of the United States Department of Treasury from 1919 to 1930. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, He once said, I'd rather see my children up against a wall and see them shot down before my eyes than to know that any one of them was going to be a drug slave.
0: He's got fucked up priorities. And speaking
1: of his children. Right. Nutt's son, (laughs) Roland Nutt, or Wright Nutt, L-Nut and R-Nut. Really? That's... Really? (laughs) Righty and lefty's son-in-law, L.P. Mattingly, Mm -hmm. it turns out they were attorneys. Guess who their client was? Who? Their client was uh, Arnold Rothstein. Aka the brain, the Jewish mobster, <laughs> who if 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 anyone's seen the Godfather Part Two, right? Hyman Roth
0: ah, is yeah
1: based on Arnold Rothstein. He was he was called the brain in the mob. He was the guy that figured it all out, turned the mob into a big business mm-hmm. from like small you know, shit to big shit. It was um, Arnold allegedly in 1919 who fixed the World Series. Oh, my God. And, st- and started that whole thing of mobsters fixing sporting games. Um, he basically paid off one of the teams to throw the game. Right. And then uh, then he bet against them massively and cleaned up. He was also the guy who supposedly realised that Prohibition, was a huge business opportunity for the mob. Mm -hmm. And the guy who worked out that uh, banning drugs was going to be a a huge opportunity. He's the first successful modern drug dealer. Nice.
0: Opportunity. And
1: so the brain, Arnold Rothstein, was the first modern drug dealer, the brains behind the mob, the head of the prohibition unit for the narcotics division. His son and son-in-law were working... For Arnold Rothstein as attorneys, right?
0: Now I think you're. I think you're jumping to conclusions here. Just because they provide this businessman who sees opportunities where other people don't, legal advice, I feel like I'm about to say Michael Cohen at any moment, um, doesn't automatically mean that they're criminals themselves.
1: Hmm. Except they were found guilty of being criminals themselves. <laughs> um, You're right in theory, but they were actually. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Now, Rothstein was whacked in 1928 for refusing to pay a $300,000 poker debt. Um, He accused the guy was cheating, refused to pay, got shot and killed. He was only in his 40s. Mm. Um, Unlike Hyman Roth that got shot on the orders of Michael Corleone for trying to have Michael Corleone assassinated uh, in in his house. Um, with the assistance of his brother Fredo, who uh, didn't know that they were going to whack him, Oops. but he let them into the Corleone compound. Don't, don't it's, it's complicated, don't you but know, good do get into it. yeah yeah yeah. Um, did you hear what happened in my home? <laughs> where my family live? where my children play with their toys in my home.
0: And when Michael Corleone um, raises his voice, you know someone's about to oh, die. Oh yeah, scared the <laughs> shit out of me.
1: He does that when he goes to meet with um, Frankie Pentangeli. right? And, and, and his house, which is is his old house, his father's old house, That's in, right, uh, in New York. And you can see Frankie uh, just uh, like shit himself, <laughs> like just Michael. Raising his voice. You can see this guy who's twice his age, friends of his father, just like literally on, crap God. his pants. Exactly. Like,
0: yeah, fuck. <laughs> I would watch all that, that tonight, but I have no power. Go ahead. Uh,
1: yeah, right. Anyway, so um, the writing the su- uh, nut, the son, <coughs> um, was was charged with borrowing, in inverted commas, thousands of dollars from Rothstein. Rothstein. <laughs> Um, while helping him with a little tax problem. So um, that was another reason that Lefty, Nut, uh, Levi, had to resign slash get fired slash get squeezed out. Yeah. So anyway, back to Lefty. According to Henry, in the 20s, Nut wrote a pamphlet that was distributed nationwide to physicians, Mm. telling them that they had to stop giving drug addicts prescriptions for drugs in any way, shape, or form. Now, there may have been a period, uh, you know, between 1919 and, and, and the Linda case in 1925 where that was true. Mm-hmm. But then after 1925, he kept doing it. Um, and this obviously was not true. Right. Um, because the Supreme Court had ruled they didn't have to do that. But, um, you know, the, 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 the doctors didn't, A, really know that and b it's very expensive to fight a court case like this particularly when you're fighting against the federal government that has an endless amount of money to 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 go after you with
0: right um, i'm glad you said that because there was one point when in my notes where i i had figured out i was looking up edward williams and he figures out um that he can write these prescriptions and that it had just faded away after a while and then again he sets up his uh he sets up his clinic, uh, I think it's like 1930 or something like that. But the point is, uh, we were making earlier, a lot of doctors um, didn't realize, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember now, but he sets up his free clinic because he was. He did some digging and he realized that there was the loophole that doctors could write prescriptions for the stuff if they found it medically necessary, which prompted him to Open up the clinic and donate his time, um, which gets, which we'll go into all this stuff later. But it's a, it's a huge success. But I'm glad I'm glad you pointed that out because I think that was part of the thing that he had found out and took advantage of it to try to help people.
1: Yeah, and you think about it, like <clears throat> who, who the fuck follows Supreme Court cases? I mean, most of <laughs> Not me, most of us don't. Right. At the best of times, but secondly, you know, you know this happened uh, the the Linda case. In twenty five, okay, nineteen twenty five. It's it's the it's the Roaring Twenties because um, yeah, booze is illegal, so if, uh, <laughs> we're, we're we're having fun in speakeasies and shit. Right. Um, by the time uh, uh, Edward opens his clinic, the, the the Great Depression has kicked in. People have got other problems. No one's following the Supreme Court. Doctors, you know, they're not lawyers and they don't have time to study everything. So maybe some of them knew about it, some of them didn't. It had been illegal to prescribe prescriptions. So Harrison, Taktak, Harrison passes in late 14, mm-hmm. goes into practice in 15. For four years, doctors can still prescribe drugs. Then there's the Webb case, 1919, says, no, nah, right. you can't do it. So then there's a period of six years where you can't do it. Then there's the Linda case. Supreme Court says, yes, you can, fucking go for your life. So then they can do it. So one day you can, one day you can't, yeah. one day you can So it's confusing, right, for right. the doctors. Um, but anyway, uh, Nutty, Lefty, issues this, this pamphlet that he sends to physicians around the country saying, don't fucking do it. It's what um, Henry in his book calls the Code. The blackmail code or the edict of nut right? <laughs> which I kind of I like. It's you know, harkens back to our Renaissance show. The Edict of Nut <laughs> That
0: just sounds ominous. Now
1: yeah. it was it was ominous and in nineteen twenty five the Los Angeles County Medical Association wrote a brochure which they distributed to their doctors that stated Uh, It is here stated definitely and after consideration that any physician who attempts to devote his time to the treatment of narcotic addiction disease at the present time, no matter how conservative he may be or conscientious or careful or no matter how humanitarian his purpose will invariably come into conflict with the laws. Now, these aren't actual laws because the Supreme Court has ruled (coughs) that there are no fucking laws. But they keep this, it vague. Is, yeah. this is the edict of nut. Well, no, the Supreme Court wasn't vague. No, no, the Supreme not that Court I'm, ta- was, I'm,
0: I'm talking about the pamphlet.
1: Well, the pamphlet is is right, because the what the pamphlet is saying is um you're gonna cut, you're gonna get into trouble, you know, with the cops. Yeah. Forget
0: Compassion. you know the law.
1: Yeah. Oh. And forget yeah, doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, you're gonna get into trouble. And we'll talk about why California was a particularly special case in a minute. Um so there were also editorials and medical journals around the same stage basically saying, listen, you're taking your life into your own hands if you prescribe drugs to drug addicts, so just don't do it, right? Right. Um, even though it was legal. So then we have the, the Linda cases, I said, that happened in that year, um, and, but it didn't stop, didn't stop Nutty right. uh, or his successors. So um, between 1914 and 1938, some 20 to 25,000 doctors were arrested for supplying drugs. Ugh. Forty clinics were closed by the cops. Now, when these doctors were arrested, most of them were just charged massive fines. Mm-hmm. Some faced five years in prison
0: for each and every prescription written. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Their lives are over. Now, now
1: keep in mind that legally, at least after the Linda case in 25 and before 1919, these doctors were in the right. Yeah. But as I said before, so imagine you're in a clinic, you've got a bunch of patients they're waiting around, cops kick in the door, right. arrest the doctor or doctors in the clinic shutter the place kick everybody out put their you know police tape around it <laughs> right put big stickers on the doors saying closed by the federal government fuck off um so the doctors have to get a lawyer the, the that's expensive the clinic's been shut down so so patients stop coming to the clinic mm-hmm. um it's gonna take the doctors months maybe years to fight this in court yeah because there's so many to, of them. To, yeah to get the clinic reopened to, to, to get out of their own charges that's gonna cost them a fortune meanwhile where do all of these patients go to get their drugs
0: God. and and that's if the doctors are found not guilty so again that that's not a given
1: yeah. So meanwhile, all of these addicts uh, turn to the mob to, to uh, uh, fill the gap, to, to get their drugs. Now, what happens when the mob takes control of the medicine supply? Well, the first thing is the price goes way, way up. Right. Right. Um, According to Henry, in the pharmacies, morphine had cost two or three cents a grain. Right. The mob charged a dollar.
0: Oh, my God. That's Halliburton prices.
1: (laughs) Speaking of organized crime, yeah. (laughs) Um, And, of course, we also know that the mob doesn't give a fuck about the health of its uh, 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 right. Customers I mean they don't want them to all die But So they will start Cutting the, uh, the, the, the Drugs with, with Fucking I don't know baby powder or Whatever
0: they do or, So the quality of, yeah. the, of the drug goes down And it's a thousand times more expensive
1: Right They could have afforded it When it was two or three cents Now it's gone up by 50 times So what do they do They have to turn to crime They're forced to become criminals Yeah to to get their medicine basically.
0: It's not like they can and get so a second or this third has been job created. Because there's no jobs yeah. to have. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Because there's a fucking depression. So. Right. <laughs> so it's completely fucked. It's all fucked. And basically two crime waves have been created by Lefty Nut <laughs> and Harry the gunslinger anslinger. Um, they've they've turned the patients into criminals, and they've given the criminals control of the supply of the drugs.
0: And who is going to combat all these brand new criminals?
1: Um, Kevin Costner?
0: (laughs) Close, only if he plays Harry Anslinger in the upcoming movie that we're writing.
1: Well, yeah, Harry Anslinger, yeah, he claims to be fighting them, but he's actually creating them. Right. But, and, and, of course, the more money the gangs get, the more control the gangs get. This is, this is the classic um, problem with capitalism, right? When somebody gets a lot of money, what do they do with that money? Well, they use it to consolidate their power, mm-hmm. partly by buying off politicians. Nice. So you buy off politicians to make sure that the legislation that gets enacted supports your income stream. Uh, And that's, you know, the mob's been doing that. The gangs have been doing that. Anyone who's watched The Wire knows that that's still going on today in America. drug dealer, if you're you're, um, uh, 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 Stringer Bell or Avon Barksdale (laughs) in uh, Baltimore, you know you 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 dropping off uh, brown bags of cash yeah. to uh, to to what's his face the shit guy <laughs> whose uh name i can't recall I can't... right now
0: they make investments uh,
1: yeah, uh, uh, of, yeah. Uh, of, this <laughs> of this particular
0: of this particular moment in history uh, henry williams writes the united states government as represented by its anti drug officers, has just become the greatest and most potent maker of criminals in any recent century. So, just like you said, everybody who needs this stuff because they're addicted is now a criminal, and the people that are supplying it are now criminals. And so, basically, you've just, boom, you've just created an, a crime wave that now has to be dealt with, and we have to spend a lot of money to deal with it. And, 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 and in all of this, there is absolutely no or very little sympathy going out to anybody.
1: Very little sympathy and very little precedent. Um, Henry says that men are forced to become thieves, women are forced to become prostitutes. He writes, How is the average addict revealed by the official census as an average person to secure $10 or $15 a day to pay for the drug he imperatively needed? Can you guess the answer? The addict could not get such a sum by ordinary means Then he must get it by dubious means. He must beg, borrow, forge, steal. The American Inquisition thus inaugurated will stand out for all time among the great epochs of persecution. Speaking as an historian, I venture to predict that even within the present century, it will be regarded as an event of far greater significance for America and entitled to a larger place in historical annals than the event that we now speak of as the World War. Well, I don't know uh, how true that is, but I think one day we will look back on the war on drugs as a massive disaster and calamity. Right. All right, well, let's wrap up that episode there. While Ray still has some power, um, let me just quickly read a review. This is from Jerry Kike. K-L-K-K-E, maybe Kilkie, Kilkie82 from Ireland. To be sure, to be sure. Kiss the Bloody Stone. Fuck all the British. No, that's getting a bit Scottish there. To be sure, to be sure. It is BS, but it's got an Aussie plus... <laughs> this is a terrible accent. i I got, got to get my leprechaun on. Hold on. <laughs> I'm O'Reilly. I'm Irish. I'm all Irish. It is BS, but it's got an Aussie plus Virginian cousin love and filter attached. Great research and content by the two boys. And it's great to get an insight into how Cam's mind works, kind of. Right? <laughs> he's just giggling. Top class as always from the Vegas loving twosome. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Send us a, You're not wrong. Send us an email, Jerry, with your address. We'll send you a thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, the D-back cups. People are loving the D-back coffee mugs. Nice. Um, and a there's a fucking, there's a move there's a movement happening, man. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Gulch, a local Brisbane boy, was chatting with me last night, said that he's starting to make D-back a thing in his office. It's becoming the catchphrase. Well, you know, D-back. Oh, right, D-back. Yep, yep, D-back. It's becoming a thing. I'm thinking about setting up a training course. I'm going to go out to corporations. I'm thinking about creating a school of philosophy based around D-back, I'm just going to go out and preach D-back. That could be my new yeah, you thing, Ray, the, you could, the school of D-back. You
0: could team up with Trump University and really go at it. <laughs>
1: He's the back side. I'm the D-back <laughs> Good side. Point.
0: Yeah. Good point. I stand corrected.
1: Oh, Let me thank the following new Bullshit Fighters supporters of the show. John Haggerty. These are bronze subscribers. So, you know, let's not thank them too much because they're they're taking the $1 a month option here. The lowest possible amount of money that they can possibly part with. They go, you know like Cam and Ray, they they do 20, 30, 40 hours of research for this show every month. What's the least amount of money I can can part with to get the bet? Like, (laughs) if we had a one cent option, they would have chosen that but no but but it's 99 cents they've gone yeah fuck it no that's that's what they're worth that's what their time is worth so you figure that like cam puts in 20 hours a uh, a week into all his shows but 20 hours a week uh, 20 hours a month in the bullshit field of research so a dollar what's that what's a dollar divided by 20 uh, 5 cents yeah i shouldn't have used needed a calculator with that 5 cents an hour they've gone you know what that's what. not to mention the recording they go, that's what i reckon cam's time is worth 5 cents Anyway, but despite all that, I want to thank them. John Haggerty, Cheyenne Mitchell, Cheyenne Cheyenne, 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 Mitchell.
0: Change.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ch-ch-ch-ch-changes. Jessica, uh, spelled J-E-S-I-K-A. Sure. Jessica Schiller, never seen that before. That's kind of cool. Timothy Sanders, Sheena Nichols. Nitin Walia, David Hignett, Stanley Pupecki, Shane Ingram, Jeremy Bigness. <coughs> I'm sorry. Is that a real name, Jeremy? Hey, hey, I'm the Bigness. <laughs> yeah, you want some coffee inside you or the Bigness? Which will you choose? Uh, Jeffroy Aura. Oh, fuck. Joel Santiago uh, Fuentes Zulepa. I probably got all those names. I've just got, like, the, the, the names are all mixed up in my little spreadsheet. I'm sorry, Joel. I'm not sure what's your first and your last name. I apologize if I buggered that. Andrew Collier, Sean Billings, Paula Davis, Bill Fleming, Scott Berbick, Darren Giddens, Frank Myers. Oh, sorry. From Scott Berbick onwards, these are silver. Maybe Bill Fleming. It says bronze and silver. I think Bill upgraded. Or maybe downgraded. Nice. Either way. For silver, let's go. Bill Fleming, Scott Berbick, Darren Giddens, Frank Myers, Sarah Hazel Pickering, Thomas Steele, Thibaut Crochon, and Burka Azier. They're our silver subscribers. So thank you to those people for not taking the lowest you. possible option. Um, and uh, that's it for the show until next week, uh, where we'll be back with uh, more drugs, more war on drugs. More drugs. And find out why we know... That the cops in California, the drug cops in California, were corrupt as fuck.
0: This is
1: bullshit.